The sermon text this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I read a blog uh, a couple weeks ago. It reminded me when I was growing up, um, growing up on the water and learning how to sail early in life, uh, particularly as you're young, you get away from the shore, you get a little bit out in deep water, and uh, the boat starts moving and the waves start bouncing you around, and you can quickly kind of feel a little bit nauseous and your stomach gets a little bit queasy and and uh, I remember early on my dad telling me we you need to look at something fixed and firm you, you need to focus on something that is not moving and so generally that would be the shoreline or a building or you know some set of trees but he said look at something fixed and firm uh, when light, you know, when the boat's moving all around and, and they'll bring a, bring a peace to you, and it always did. Well, you know, we're continuing to live in these very, very uncertain times. It's shifting and changing on us all the time. I mean, you think about the politics, change of administration. This has not been without its drama and all kinds of conflict and issues. You think about the, just the changing cultural environment we live in. I mean, institutions and words that always meant the same thing now have different meanings. It shifts and changes on you. You think about the pandemic and the constant adjustment and, and change that the government is bringing about to try to handle the situation. Economic instability. So all these things kind of are, are entering our lives in a unique way and in high amounts. It's causing a degree of uncertainty and concern and and for many of us, fear. Well, you know, when Paul was writing to this church, this church of the Thessalonians, you know, they were experiencing incredible turbulence, incredible. Uh, times were shaking, the pressures, the marginalization, the persecution that they were under. And yet Paul commends them. He commends them for increasing in faith and growing in love and being steadfast in suffering and hardship. He commends them. And then he explains why to us, as you continue reading in verses 5 to 10, that we find, of course, that they had this hope, this rock-solid hope, that there was a day coming where the Son of Man would come and would make all things right. He would bring justice to the ungodly, the persecutor, the liar. He would bring justice to the brokenness of our world. And at the same time, he would bring relief to the godly. And so Paul here is commending a church under trial. He reminds them of where their hope is that keeps them stable and solid. And then he prays for it. He doesn't actually pray for them. He tells us, he tells them how he prays for them. He's really giving to us a model how to pray for others to persevere. He wants them to continue on faithfully. And so after commending them and reminding them of the hope of this glorious gospel, he then prays for them. So what I want to do with you is, is look at this prayer as a model that we can follow. Uh, but, but it's not just a model of prayer. There, there's almost a mandate as to how we ought to live in this prayer. 
Hey, we really draw out of this prayer how we ought to live in these days of turbulence and trial. So first I want to look at his practice of prayer and then his petitions, what he prays for. Do we pray the same way? How should eternity shape our prayers? And then we're going to look at, of course, the purpose of praying. What, what are we looking for when we pray? Are we just looking for immediate relief? And so well, let's start with the practice of prayer. Though. Look at the beginning of verse 11 with me. It's a very simple opening. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. To this end, we always pray for you. So Paul, of course, is including Timothy and Silas here, this missional team. They together are praying. They're praying for this church. You know, we always pray for you. We pray for you. Paul was a powerhouse in prayer. I mean, he was, his prayer life was robust. I mean, he, he prayed a lot. You know, you may notice, or perhaps you have, in these two short letters, 13 times he speaks about his praying for them or how he prays for them or he actually prays for them. Now here Paul, right, Paul is an intellectual giant. You see that in his letters. He worked diligently hard. He was a hard worker. He says, I worked harder than any of them in 1 Corinthians 15. And yet he's a man of prayer. And you notice he doesn't get caught up in this, well, but if God's sovereign, why should I have to pray? He just prays. He knows that God has ordained his own people to pray as a means of furthering his plan. God draws us in with him into his plan of bringing about all things being made new through our prayers. And so he prays. He prays for them to persevere. In fact, you, you notice he doesn't pray for the suffering to end. He doesn't pray for peace to come. He doesn't pray for everything to work out. It says, to this end, we always pray for you. To what end is he praying? Well, I think the verse right before ours in verse 10, to this end. Remember in verse 10, he says that when, on that day when Jesus comes, he will be glorified in the saints, and we will marvel at him. We'll look at him. All who believe will marvel at him. He's praying for them to finish well. He's praying for them to reach that day when they will marvel at him. You know, we do, we are people who marvel. I mean, we marvel over athletes. We marvel over Hollywood. We marvel over those who are successful, who are beautiful, who are powerful. We, mover, we marvel over people all the time. And yet on this day, there's only one that will be marveled over. No one will have anything to say. They'll just marvel. In Isaiah 50, 52, at the end of the chapter, he says, even kings will shut their mouths because of him. And we will all look at him, and we will marvel over his beauty and his power and his glory. And what Paul's praying for, that we always pray for you, that you'll see that day. Paul wants them to persevere. He wants them to move through the difficulties of this life so that on that day, they'll marvel over him. That's what he's asking for. That's his practice of prayer. When you consider your own life of prayer, how would you describe it? To what degree do you find prayer to be a regular practice you're seeking God? I mean, I admit that it's hard. For me, I'd rather read, I'd rather study, I'd rather meditate, I'd rather sing, I'd rather work, I'd rather do anything than pray. Alexander White was a Scottish theologian in the 19th century, 
and he had this series of sermons uh, on Thomas Shepard. Thomas Shepard was a Puritan minister uh, that was born in England, preached in England, came to the States. In fact, he helped found Harvard University. But this Alexander White was preaching a series of sermons, and one of the titles of his sermons caught my attention. Here's the title. It is sometimes so with me that I will rather die than pray. Maybe you can empathize with that. I would rather die than pray. Even Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher of the 20th century, says everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Do you believe that? Prayer is hard. How do we increase? How, how do we move in our practice of praying for one another? We, you know, I think we know that when we're brought to a place of deep need, and we find our resources to be thin and empty, we turn to prayer. If your child is sick, maybe even dying, you're looking at him or her, you don't struggle to pray. If all of a sudden you're across the desk from a doctor and he says, it's a really bad report. You don't, you don't struggle to start asking God for help. If, if layoffs are coming and you're financially broken and you're about to lose your job, you don't struggle to pray. It's, it's growing aware of our desperate need that all of a sudden reminds us, God, help us. I, I think what Paul's doing here, to this end, he knows that this life is challenging. He knows it's difficult. He wants this church to finish well. He says, to this end we pray. Can I encourage you, even this afternoon, to just process with a friend or your spouse, how can I pray more? Uh, help remind me of this day. To this end, he says, to this end, we, will, we always pray for you. Think about that final day. Think about the day where you were mar that you will marvel over him. Think about that day when he will come with angels in flaming fire. Think about that day. Folks, we, we need to. We're more concerned with the worries of next week that will never happen and yet we don't even give time to the reality of what may happen tomorrow or next week. So, so Paul's practice of prayer was regular. Uh, but notice what he prayed for in the passage here. Now look with me back at verse 11, because he prays for two things. First, he prays for increased holiness, and he prays for increased fruitfulness. Oh, look at the first one, increased holiness. He prays, he says, that God may make us worthy of his calling that God may make us worthy of his calling now, Paul's just praying that we finish well Paul's praying that we live in light of God's great mercy Paul's praying that we would live in a way that reflects we have been changed we've been born again now, where do I get that well notice what he says uh, make them worthy of his calling what is his calling well, when we speak about the calling of God, we're not, <clears throat> we're not talking about the kind of invitation that God gives to every single person, and we could say yay or nay to it. In, in Scripture, when it speaks about God's calling, he, he's speaking about an effectual call, an effective call, that when God, through His Spirit, draws you to Himself, He's calling you, you respond in faith and repentance. You're led to conviction. You're led to, all of a sudden, you have the gift of grace given to you that you can believe in him, and you follow him. This is the calling of God. It's not based on your, your merit. It's not based on what you've done. It's not based on your performance or your potential. It's not based on what you may do. 
The calling of God is always based on the mercy of God. It's his kindness that wakes up the sinner to himself and then draws them to himself. I mean, think about it this way. It's kind of analogous to when, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. He stood outside the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come out. Now, Lazarus wasn't in there debating, well, do I want to go, do I not want to go? No, no, no. The call of Christ was like the injection of life into his dead body. And of course he responds by going out. He goes to the one who gives him life. That's the same way. The calling of God gives life to us. It rebirths us. It moves us in grace and faith to believe. We repent. We go to him. We're reconciled. This is the call of God. So what Paul's praying is, if you understand the call, if you've really been called of God, live in a manner worthy of it. Live in accordance with it. Now, what does it look like to live a life in a manner worthy of the calling? Well, you can imagine, but let, let me give you some specifics. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes these words, and notice the similarity. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, same thing, to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Or in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what Paul's praying for is simply this. Uh, God, make them, consider them worthy as they live their life in accordance with your calling. In other words, your life begins to be marked by greater gentleness and patience. Uh, you strive for the spirit rather than introduce division. You strive side by side with your brothers and sisters for the faith of the gospel. What does that mean? That means that you're fighting for each other to finish well. This is what the life looked like. This is what the life looks like as it marches toward the final day. So think about it this way. If a prisoner who is given a life sentence has his sentence commuted or pardoned, it isn't a worthy thing if he is released and then jumps right back into a life of criminal activity. You'd say that was a waste. You didn't live worthy of the pardon that you received. If you here have been called by God and have been saved, it's because of his mercy. How do we then live in light of his mercy? We live in a way that he calls us to, in gentleness and peace, striving for unity. So to what degree are you living in light of his mercy? Are you living in a manner worthy of his calling? I know that the world may be falling to pieces, but our business, we look to that day and we live a life in accordance, in a manner worthy of his calling. I'm not talking about perfectionism here. I'm not talking you have to be perfect in this life. It's a pursuit of God that we live. And that's what Paul's praying for. Paul is praying and I have been praying for you, and I'm going to encourage you to pray for one another, that we all are pursuing that growth in godliness. How do we do it? Well, we seek God, of course. That's what Paul did. He asked God to make us worthy. I'm asking you to ask God for one another. You, you know, we have the member list that we give out. We have it on a calendar. You can... Most of you, I think, have Alexio on your phone. It's just an app for the church membership. You can pull up Alexio. 
you hit calendar and you have the day, boom, it comes up and this is who we're to pray for. This is what we want to do. This is one way of helping one another finish well is that we're going to pray that God may make us worthy of his calling. So, so tomorrow morning when you wake up and you hit the app, you're going to see the Saxons on there. You're going to see the Sharn Horse and the Sailors. You're going to see the Sextons on there. About five or six families per day. I would ask you to pray for them. This is one way of walking out what Paul's saying, that we would be a church that says, God, help us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Have you, have you ever asked anyone to do that for you? We ask for health, we ask for a job, and those things are fine. But can we ask people, would you help pray for me that I might walk in a manner worthy of your great mercy? It really would change the way we live, change the way we respond to each other. So that's Paul's prayer. Paul prays that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But we don't just ask God, we have to encourage each other as well. I mean, there is a place where God wants his church to help each other walk with each other towards this finishing well, towards this well done, my good and faithful servant. You won't get there on your own. We all need each other. You know, Ed Welsh is a, he's a writer, he's a counselor, writes for CCEF. He just wrote an article, and in the article he was saying about how the members of the church are really to, to see themselves as pastors. <clears throat> Not in an ordained sense, <clears throat> but you are to see yourselves as pastors because you are to care for one another's souls. That, that you're, to, you're to provide care for one another as these days progress to a final day. That you're to intersect one another. The Hebrew says the same thing. Let us consider how to spur on one another towards love and good deeds, and all the more as what? As you see the day approaching. That's what Paul's doing. He, sees, he says, to this end we pray. So as we look to that final day, where the winnowing begins to take place, God help our people at Christ's covenant. Walk in a manner worthy of his calling. So, so that'd be the, the first petition that Paul gives. But notice the second petition he gives. It's in the second half of verse 11. Here's where he prays that God may fulfill every good resolve and every faith, every work of faith by his power. So let's look at those together. So he's praying for every good resolve that we have. That word resolve can be desire. Every intention we have. Now, think about it for a minute. Before you were called into the kingdom, you had desires and intentions in life. And maybe it was to be successful. Maybe it was to be beautiful. Maybe it was to be powerful. Maybe it was to be a person of great influence. What were your desires before you were called? Because when you're called into faith in Christ, you're called... And now you know the creator of the universe, your desires change. They change. They begin to morph. They begin to move from just physical and material to spiritual and eternal. You know, maybe you wanted to be served, but now you feel the inclination to serve. Maybe you wanted to really store up, almost on the verge of greediness, wealth. Now you want to give. You know, before you were kind of self-promoting, always wanted to kind of insert yourself into the center of a conversation, but now you want to promote other people. Your desires change. He says, he prays for every resolution to be fulfilled. You know, Jonathan Edwards, of course, was a great theologian in this country in the 18th century, and he wrote down at a very young age 70 resolutions he had. These resolutions clearly are marked through and through 
by his desire for God to be honored, for him to finish well. Let me just give you a few of them. Actually, the first one is a great one. It's not even numbered among the resolutions, but he says, remember to read over these once a week. I love that. This is why we preach once a week. We need to be reminded of these things. A mind as brilliant as him. Remember to read these once a week. So first resolution, resolved, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory, my own good and profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration, that means his whole life, without any consideration of the time, whether now or ages hence. Resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. It's a huge resolution. I want to live for the glory of God. Let me give you another one. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. I'd read that to Tommy year after year in his teenage years. Another one, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. He has these intentions and resolutions that are Godward. And Paul's praying, God, fulfill these. What intentions do you have? What spiritual intentions do you have? We make New Year's resolutions each year. What resolutions do you have regarding your own spiritual well-being? You may, be, you may have resolved yourself this year, I want to eat better, I want to I read more, I want to take care of my body. Those are fine, but what spiritual resolutions have you made? Because these are the things I want to pray that they be fulfilled. What are they? How are you thinking? What do you want this year to bring? How are you spiritually setting goals for yourselves? Because Paul's praying, God, every intention that they have that's in a Godward direction further it. But not just notice, he says, every good resolve, but also every work of faith. Now, what is this speaking about? A work of, well, work of faith is a work done not by my own power, but by I have to trust Jesus to be able to help me to do it. A work of faith is something I don't naturally have experience or maybe super comfort doing, but by, God, by, by faith, I'm going to believe that if I put my hand to it, the Lord himself will help me do it. Uh, so that's a work of faith. But how do the two relate to each other, these intentions and works? Well, they are, the way I look at it would be simply this. You have desires that you may want to do for God's kingdom, but then you need to carry out those desires. You know, we have the expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. In other words, I don't particularly love that, but it does make the point clearly that you can decide what you want to do but if you never do it, it won't take you anywhere. So these works of faith are the intentions that you have, and then you, by faith, walking in them. And Paul is praying that, we would, that God would enable us to fulfill those things. So let me give you some examples. You might have the intention to say, you know what, I, I want to, for the first time in my life, I want to disciple someone. I, I, I intend, I, I want to do it, I'm going to make a resolution to be investing in the life of one other person. Well, then a work of faith would be you going up and grabbing somebody in the church and saying, would you read a book with me? Can we read the Bible together? Let's just take eight weeks and let's do it. And, and, and it's nervous. Maybe you're scared. You've never done it before. But by faith, you're going to do it because you're going to trust that the power of Almighty God is going to help move you. Or maybe another one would be, I, I, really, I really desire to share the gospel more at work. Well, then a work of faith would be that you begin to then grab a coworker, take him out to lunch. So how are you doing in the craziness of this world? 
And then you get to share how you are finding peace with God in the midst of the turbulence of this life. Or maybe you're struggling with, with lust or anger or bitterness. And you say, I, I really want to grow so that I am defeating those temptations in greater measure. So, so by faith, you grab another brother or sister in this church and you say, would you help pray with me? I'm really struggling in these areas. But, but you're moving by faith. Or giving. You know, you say, I should give more. Maybe money, maybe time, maybe the gifts that you have. And so by faith, you step out. You don't wait to receive. You just move by faith. And so when Paul's praying that every good resolve and every act of faith would be fulfilled by his power, uh, Paul's asking, God, God, complete fruitfulness in them. Increase their desire for ministry. To what degree do you pray this way? To what degree do you pray for yourself that God would fulfill the very desires that you have? To what degree do you pray that God would give you grace to walk by faith? How do you, do you pray that for other people? What resolves need to change in your life? What works of faith do you need to step in this year? Again, the world can be fracturing, but we are called to increase in faithful, in, um, in holiness, and we're called to increase in fruitfulness. Now, you, I, I don't want you hearing me saying, okay, so the way to make sure that I finish well is I have to become holier and I've I have to become more fruitful. And if I'm not, then I'm not saved. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to explain to you the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance is simply this, that if you have been called of God, if he has put new life in your soul, you're going to want to increase in holiness. You may struggle and you may fall down a ton of times, but you're going to want more of that. You're going to want to be more fruitful. You may be terrified to do it, but you're going to find yourself moving forward. In other words, the increasing holiness that Paul is praying for and the increasing fruitfulness, those are not the basis of your salvation, but they are the evidence of it. That as they begin to increase, it's the evidence that you've been saved. You see the difference? That, that our lives, Paul's praying. Now, Paul knows that God has to save us. But do you see, Paul doesn't mind his prayers running right alongside God's sovereignty. God, advance them in holiness, advance them in fruitfulness. This is the way we are to pray for one another. This is a model of prayer for us. Uh, again, you're increasing your pursuit of holiness and your pursuit of fruitfulness in ministry, serving one another, that is not the cause of your salvation. But it is a condition. It, it, it's there if you're being saved. And, 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 you know, James said the same thing. Faith without works is dead. John Calvin said, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Uh, this is a good time for us just to stop at the beginning of the year and just do some quick assessment of your own soul. I, I don't want you thinking that by coming here on Sunday morning, everything's square with God. I want you to see. And I also don't want you sitting on some decision that you made 28 years ago. I want you to see active fruit of the Spirit in your life this year so that you can be looking forward to that day with confidence and not with uncertainty. 
I don't want you just relying, well, well, I was justified back when I was 18. Well, we're justified and we're sanctified. That's really what the prayer is. Paul is praying for our sanctification to increase so that we reach and enjoy glorification. If you're not a Christian here, increasing in holiness and increasing in fruitfulness is not the way to be saved. No, the basis of our salvation rests in the work of Christ alone. In other words, we, we see ourselves as, as sinners before a righteous and good God. And when we see the sin that we have before God, we repent of that sin. Now, the, this may be in a moment in your life. It may occur over time. But there's a, an increasing awareness of this is not right. This is not, this is not right in accordance with how I've been made and who has made me. And that leads us to repent. And then when we repent, we realize we really can't save ourselves. We need to deliver. And so repentance is led to faith in Christ, one who has come from God, for whom God has already said, well done. He's already gotten that. He, he's the beloved son, that he then dies in our place, that through faith in him, we are reconciled to God and we're made right. We're not made perfect. We will be perfected, but we're not made perfect now. But we're being changed by his spirit. That's how we become a Christian. And then once we have received the call of God, Jesus made the same call. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. So he calls us to himself when we feel the burden of our sin, and he gives us rest. And then when he gives us rest, then we begin to move forward in holiness and in fruitfulness. Okay, so you see Paul. His practice of prayer was regular, it was consistent, it was robust. He's praying for the church. We're praying for you. We ought to be praying for one another. The petitions of his prayer, increasing holiness, increasing fruitfulness. Do we pray that way for one another? Because we need to. We can just follow this as a model. But then you see the purpose of his prayer in verse 12. The purpose is very simple. That Christ might be glorified in us and we would be glorified in him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus, so that Christ be glorified. Now, we touched on this last week, but bear with me for a moment. Paul is praying that as we increase in holiness, as we increase in fruitfulness, Christ will be glorified. And Jesus said this would happen. In John 17 10, he says, And glory has come to me through them. So Jesus sees that through the works of his saints, through their holiness and through their works, he will be glorified. We don't add to his glory. We don't like add to the bank balance in his savings account. He is fully glorious, but we're displaying it and we're declaring it through our life. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, he says, let your light so shine before men. In other words, let your holiness shine. And he says, let your good deeds, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds done and they may praise their Father in heaven. So our increasing holiness, our increasing fruitfulness, in a world such as ours, is going to redound to the glory of Christ. Now I think that makes sense to us, but what he says later is more of a challenge. He says, and we will be glorified in him. We will be glorified. Now, I said last week how that's more than just reflective. We're not just reflecting his glory that when we are increasing in these things, we are actually changing by his glory. We are becoming new. We're becoming fully human. 
Think about it. When you come to faith in Christ, you're born again. You're starting a new life. We become more fully human. We become more like Christ. As we increase in holiness, as we increase in good works, we're becoming like him. I think that's what he's saying here, that he'll be glorified in us and we'll be glorified in him. But I think there's one other thing I want you to notice in this text. He's not just saying that we'll glorify him and we'll be changed. He does say that in 2 Corinthians 3, that as we behold Christ, we are being transformed from glory to glory. So we are being changed. But there's that final day that Paul's still thinking about. To this end, he said, there'll be a day, <clears throat> I believe, and I'll, I think when Paul, in verse 12, I think he's drawing that from Isaiah, in Isaiah 66. It, it looks to a future day. Now let me read it to you. It's a little confusing. <clears throat> he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So he's speaking to the faithful ones now who are suffering. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. In other words, they're mocking. They're mocking us. As we increasingly get marginalized, as we perhaps increasingly suffer, then they're mocking us. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. They'll be on that final day. Those who have suffered but they've increased in holiness in a dark world. They've increased in fruitfulness, even to their enemy. They have done well. That on that day, when Christ is glorified, we'll be glorified with him, and the world will glorify us. I say that not just from Isaiah 66, but Zephaniah chapter 3. Some of the most beautiful words in this book, he says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak, the Lord your God, so they're, they're struggling, they're suffering. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Can you believe that? The Lord himself will exalt over his faithful ones with loud singing. This is the end for which Paul's praying. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn, and those so that you will no longer suffer, reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into glory and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised or glorified among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So Paul's teaching a church who is suffering greatly. We may walk through increased suffering. And what he's saying to them is pursue holiness. Pursue fruitfulness, even in the midst of this sea of chaos, because there comes a day where those who actually oppressed you will bring glory to you. Go figure. He'll be glorified in us, and we'll be glorified in him. So we see Paul practicing prayer. We see him modeling prayer by petitioning that we need to pray for each other to increase in holiness and godliness, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, and we need to increase in fruitfulness, that all these resolves that we have, walk them out in faith. Walk them out in faith. 
and it will result in Christ being glorified and you finishing well being glorified with him. Now, if you think, you leave here thinking, I've got to try harder, I've got to be more diligent in my efforts, I, I don't want you to just move thinking you're going to white-knuckle this thing. Notice in just these two short verses, he's asking God to make us worthy. He's asking God to fulfill every good resolve and work of faith. He's saying that these resolves and works of faith are by his power. Even when he says Christ will be glorified in us and we'll be glorified in Christ, he even says that according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God sprinkled throughout this thing. It makes sense. It agrees with the rest of Scripture. Paul says in Philippians, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to do and will according to his pleasure. So seek God on this, people. Let us pray for one another. That's really the takeaway here, that Paul, he commends this church. I can commend you. And Paul points them to the final day, and then he prays for them. We want to follow the apostle. Imitate him as he imitated Christ. So let's just take a moment now and consider these things. Consider that end day that it might move in us a greater appreciation and practice of prayer. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.